Good morning, my friend. I hope you're doing well. It's Mind Change Monday. Are you ready to change your mind and change your life? I'm ready to get after it with you. I'm Dr. Lee Warren. I have got the most gravelly voice today. I've got something going on sinus-wise. It rained all day yesterday here in Nebraska and probably corn dust and all kinds of other things in the air. But apologize for my gravelly voice. And if you're seeing this video... I'm going to release this video as a paid subscriber bonus on Substack for the paid subscribers, and I hope that you'll be able to see that. And you can sign up for a free trial of all the paid content if you want to. You might want to hold off on that, though. I, as you've heard me say in the last few days, there's been a lot of technical issues, and I realized that Substack was having a distribution problem that they can't even diagnose or are not even aware of of what happened but i switched to another podcast host first episode went up on saturday on the 9th of september and immediately fixed a month's worth of trouble and we've had just an enormous number of downloads in the last two days because finally everybody's able to get all that work that i did between august 13th and september 10th or 9th when I switched, and so I'm grateful many of you, dozens of you wrote in and said, hey, I'm, I'm able to hear it now. It's on Apple. It's on Pod, It's on Amazon. It's on Podbean. It's on a Substack or wherever, or not Substack, but it's on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. And it's showing up now in places it's never even been, Deezer and Stitcher and and listening notes. So if you're out there and you're hearing it on one of those other platforms, I'm so grateful to have you with us. I should, by way of introduction, if you're new here, I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and this is Self Brain Surgery. The the podcast is all about changing your mind and changing your life and understanding how you're wired, understanding how your mind and brain interface with one another. And in the Christian context, understand how your spirit is involved in that. And if you can get all that, then you have an opportunity to move along the spectrum of hopefulness and happiness towards a really meaningful, purposeful, I would say happier place in your life. No matter what happens, and you're going to have some massive things. There's trauma and there's tragedy and there's massive things, but there's also just a lot of daily annoyances and difficulties that we face. And so learning how to be resilient and handle those bumps and trials gives us a really an ability to become more and more untouchable in our emotional state and have a, a life that's more solid. So we're not constantly tossed about by the storms of life because the storms are going to come, right? They're They're out there and they're coming. Hey, if you missed the one-hour live event with me and Max Lucado last Thursday, Baker Bookhouse has posted that on their YouTube channel in its entirety. So you can go to Baker Bookhouse on YouTube, and you can find the link to that uh, episode. I'm going to download it myself and make a whole bunch of social posts on it, and I'll put it up on my site as soon as they send me the permission to do that. And they're going to. It's just going to take a little bit of time. So it'll eventually show up on drleewarren.com, com, all my websites, and I'll start posting it on Instagram and Twitter and, and all that too. But if you want to go ahead and watch it, if you missed it, go to bakerbookhouse.com. I did put a link to that in my newsletter yesterday. If you're not getting my newsletter, go to drleewarren.substack.com, drleewarren.substack.com. Dot com, And you can sign up for the newsletter. And that will be moving to, we're going to move to a different email hosting platform. I learned my lesson with Substack. They have integrated a lot of great things. And my show and my letters and my subscribers have grown a lot because of Substack, and I'm really grateful. But at the end of the day, 
I think when you try to do a dozen things, you don't do all of them as well as companies that just do one thing. And so I, I went to Substack because it was so convenient and it saved me a lot of workflow and time. It put podcasting and writing and social media and all that stuff in one place. But when there's a problem, when something breaks, they don't have the bench of tech support to, to solve the problem and they couldn't solve my problem. And so I had to move and, and it's, it's going to be okay. So anyway, stay tuned for the, you shouldn't notice it really on the email side. It should be really seamless. But the new email company that I'm going to use is called MailerLite, and they have some options that Substack doesn't have. For example, if you are a free subscriber, then you can go through and check the kinds of things that you want to hear from me about. Do you want to be notified when there's a new podcast or not? Or do you just want the weekly newsletter? Do you want the previews of paid content or not? And on the paid side, do you want everything that I send out or do you just want the paid subscriber only stuff like you'll be able to segment those lists so that you can have a little bit more control over what you get from me and it won't be too much email and all that I think there's going to be some other really cool things about switching too but it's going to take some time and I started all this by saying you might want to wait on the paid subscriber if you're not a paid subscriber yet that is going to have to change at some point when I make this switch there's going to come a point in the next few weeks at some point where I'm going to reach out to the paid subscribers and say, hey, we need to move you to a new system. And that's going to require you to, I'll cancel the Substack account for you, but you'll have to set up a new one. So if you want to continue to be a supporter, and that's really important, I want to make sure that if you're getting good value out of being a paid subscriber, that you move to the new system so we don't lose you. And so I'll make it crystal clear. You'll hear from me about that, exactly what to do. So if you don't want to go through the hassle of signing up now and then having to move it in a week or two, then just wait and it'll be okay. So anyway, long preamble to say this. I have no idea all the things we're going to talk about today. I've got a bunch of stuff bouncing around in my head. And yesterday we had a new sort of massive thing happen in our family that I'll share with you in a few days. It's not time to talk about that yet, but we'll have a conversation about it later this week, and, and it'll be uh, a good thing to talk about together, but it's not time yet. Today is 9-11. It's uh, September 11th. 22 years ago, the world changed dramatically. And I was just thinking this morning about the threads that run through our lives and the things that we find ourselves resonating around and reverberating around over the course of our life. And I bet there's some for you that keep recurring and there's some things that kind of follow you throughout your whole life. It's your faith, it's your family, it's some event that occurred in the past. Sometimes it's trauma and sometimes it's, it's some devastating thing that happened in the past, a massive thing that you went through. But all of us have these threads, and 9-11 is one of those days that created a thread in my life and, and really probably has to do with why I'm talking to you right now. Probably more than any other single event up until the time we lost our son, 9-11 was one of, those, one of those times. And so I want to share with you just a few thoughts this morning about that and the thread it created for me and how it connected me to you. And all of that, and I think it'll be helpful. And I just think there's some value in going back and looking retrospectively at your life and looking for these threads. I think it can be important. And so today I'm going to give you one of mine, and we'll just have a little conversation about that. It's Mind Change Monday. So there's always an opportunity to investigate. That's what we're talking about in September here. Always an opportunity to investigate how are things working for you. And if, if something's not working and you need to change it, 
And if you're new, if you haven't gone back and listened to the episodes from early September, go back and look at the Radical Mind Shift episode because it's really important to, to make this understanding if it's not working, okay, if what you're doing isn't working, and you keep finding yourself saying, I really need to make this change. I really need to stop this, start that, move this, quit that, marry this person, change that relationship. You really know it's time to do it, but you just can't do it. The reason why you can't do it is because of this one fact that what got you here to this place where it's got to change, but what got you to that place isn't the thing that's going to get you to the place that you think you need to go. What got you here won't get you there, okay? Which means you've got to change some behaviors. You've got to change some thoughts. You've got to change some synapses. You've got to do some self-brain surgery if you want to make this change occur. And you can change your mind, and you can change your life, and you could have all of it. You can become healthier and feel better and be happier. But guess what? you got to start today. Hey, are you ready to change your life? If the answer is yes, there's only one rule. You have to change your mind first. And my friend, there's a place where the neuroscience of how your mind works smashes together with faith and everything starts to make sense. That place is called self-brain surgery. You can learn it and it will help you become healthier, feel better, and be happier. And the good news is you can start today. Thanks, Lisa. Hey, so glad to have you listening today. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I live in Nebraska in the United States of America with my incredible wife, Lisa, my father-in-law, Tata, and the super pups, Harvey and Lewis. I'm a neurosurgeon and an author, and I'm here to help you harness neuroscience, the power of your brain, faith, the power of your spirit, and good old common sense to help you lead a healthier, better, happier life. Listen, friend, you can't change your life until you change your mind, and I'm here to help you learn the art of self-brain surgery to get it done if you'd like the show. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode and tell your friends about it. If you tell two or three friends this podcast was helpful to you, imagine how much good we can all do around the world together. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I'm here to help you change your mind so you can change your life. Let's get after it. Thanks, Lisa. Hey, I'm really glad to be with you today, friend. It's it's 9-11. It's a somber day for the United States and really for the world in many ways. But it's been 22 years, and, and, and just hope you don't forget all that we went through. But there's a lot of changes that happened in my life personally, I'm sure in yours too, if you're from the United States, and really from lots of places around the world. 9-11 has some real lasting impact on all of us. I want to tell you, before we get started with this thread idea that I want to talk about today— so many of you wrote in and said, hey, I'm hearing you. I'm hearing you. Thank you so much. And I've tried to write back to lots of people, but there were maybe a hundred people wrote in and said I was able to hear it on such and such a player. So if I didn't write you back yet, I'm working on that. Yesterday I had a tough day, so I'm not caught up on emails yet. But thank you so much for participating and letting us know that you're getting the message and listening out there. It's so encouraging to know that you're connecting. So one reader yesterday unsubscribed from my newsletter and they put a comment in for why they unsubscribe which i appreciate most people just unsubscribe and they don't ever tell you why but this person wrote a note she said there's way too much preaching and not enough clinical content way too much preaching and not enough clinical content And I'm glad she wrote that, but I want to tell you, my friend, I am not going to apologize for sharing faith elements and ideas from Scripture 
and ideas from good, solid Christian writers on my channel. And I'll tell you why I'm not going to apologize, because that's clinical content too. Okay, We're going to be talking in coming weeks about a lot of information that ties your neuroscience and your faith together. We always, Lisa always says it, neuroscience and faith smashing together. That's how you produce real life change. And I want to just give you a little concept. This is going to show up in the next book of mine that will be coming out hopefully in a year or two. Self-Brain Surgery Manuscript and whatever it's going to end up being called. But that book's not going to be memoir. It's not going to be lots of stories about patients. It's not going to be about our massive thing that happened. It's going to be about how you can change your mind and you can change your life. It's going to have a lot of science in it. It's going to have a lot of references and, and stuff from neuroscience that's crystal clear now. But it's also going to have a lot of faith elements and a lot of scripture in it. And the reason is because those two things in my mind are not separable. And so I'm never, understand, I am never preaching at you. My podcast is therapy for me too, okay? I'm sharing stuff with you that I think we all need to know and we all need to take seriously because you can't change your life until you change your mind, okay? And I'm not the first person to ever say that. People have been understanding that all the way back to biblical times. And Paul said it clear. You want to be less anxious? Change what you think about. Pray more. Stop worrying so much. Think about good stuff. You'll feel less anxious. Be anxious for nothing, he says. And Max Lucado wrote a whole book about that, Anxious for Nothing. And I was so proud to have been the one that he called to be the neuroscience guy for him on that book. And he talked about it in the YouTube video that you can watch if you go out to Baker Book House and watch that YouTube video. Max reminded me and told you for the first time, because it's not in the book, it's not in the acknowledgments, it's nowhere. But Max and I spent, I don't know, hours 8, 10, 12 hours of my time back and forth on email talking about how the brain works and he wanted to understand the neuroscience of the amygdala and the basal ganglia and all that. And he reached out to me. So I got to be his team doctor for that book. But, but he reached out to me because that's something I'm sharing with you already and he knew that. And so, friend, I'm, I'm just here to tell you, I don't consider it preaching when I tell you something from Scripture that will help you change your mind. I consider it being a good doctor for you. So I'm sorry if it ever comes across like preaching. It's not. I'm teaching, okay? So today, I want to share a, a thread with you. 9-11, I was on active duty in the United States Air Force at Wilford Hall Medical Center, which at the time was the largest hospital in the Department of Defense. It was the biggest hospital in San Antonio. It served as a level one trauma center for the city of San Antonio as well as the military base. And at that time, we got patients from all over the world. If you had an acoustic neuroma or certain types of brain tumor, if you had epilepsy and needed a vagal nerve stimulator, they sent you to me. Like I was the guy with my three partners there. From all over the world, you came there. If you were a dependent, a retiree, an active duty military person, you came to Wilford Hall at the time. It was the it was this, the middle America version of Bethesda Naval Medical Center, Walter Reed out on the East Coast. But if you were anywhere in the Pacific or in the western half of the United States, you came to us. And so we were doing all kinds of cool stuff back then. And I was in my clinic on September 11th, 2001, when a senior airman came running in and said, Dr. Warren, a plane just crashed into the World Trade Center. And I looked at my patient, and my patient looked at me and said, wow, we need to go see more about that. So all of us went down the hall. There was a lobby that had a television. There were probably 20 people standing around watching the television of this event that had just occurred, and we all saw the second plane hit. And I don't know if you remember 
that moment. I'm sure you do. But the first plane, we were all thinking, what a tragedy. The second plane, we were all thinking, holy cow, we're going to war. Like Once there's two, it's an attack. It's not an accident. It's an attack. And, of course, shortly after that, we learned about the third and the fourth airplanes. But I can tell you, within an hour, and I was a young major. I was new to active duty. I'd only been in the active duty Air Force a month. I got there in August of 2001, right out of my training program in Pittsburgh. I went from Pittsburgh, my residency, I went to San Antonio for a school, a short refresher course for officer training school. Been a while since I've been on active duty. And they sent us, anybody that had been in training for more than six years, they made you go through a course, a refresher course, before you went on to active duty. And so we did that, and then I went from there to San Antonio and, and became one of three neurosurgeons there. Eventually, there was five of us eventually. But for the first month, I got there, and the commander, a doctor named David Garrett, had been working by himself throughout the summer because me and Dr. Michael Leonard, who ended up being my partner, were coming into the Air Force, and Garrett was the one who was already there, the colonel. And so he went on vacation the day I got there. My first day of active duty, I was no longer a resident, so it was the first day I was a attending neurosurgeon. I was in a 1,200-bed worldwide referral center, level one trauma center, and my boss went on vacation, and I was the only neurosurgeon working in that hospital the first day of my professional career, which was Pretty intimidating. So I got there in early August. The day I got there, Garrett handed me the beeper and said, I'll see you in two weeks. And he left. And five minutes after that, I got my first page. And my very first page as an attending neurosurgeon was about a three-year-old baby who was in the emergency department with a blown pupil and had a brain tumor. And so my first operation out of training was by myself where I had no other surgeon around to help me. And I immediately got on the phone and called Dr. John Maceros, who was a pediatric neurosurgeon that had trained me in Pittsburgh. And, and I told John what was going on. And he, I took some pictures with my cell phone of the scan that was in the days before we could electronically transmit images. So I sent him the pictures and told him my plan. And he said, that's a solid plan. You can do this. I've seen you do this. And I took that tumor out of that baby and the baby did fine. I saved the baby's life. And that was my very first case as an attending neurosurgeon. That's pretty cool. Pretty terrifying too, by the way. But so a few days later, a couple weeks later, it's September 11th, and I'm in the clinic, and we're watching this happen, and Garrett's out of town again, and I'm there by myself. So I'm the acting commander of neurosurgery, as it were, which was not that big of an honor because at the time I was the only neurosurgeon in the building, so I was the commander of me. And so the commander of the hospital called all of the flight commanders, which included me that day because I was working, down to his office. And Chuck Harden was his name. He was the squadron commander for the surgical squadron. And he said, well, by now you all know that we're going to war. And within a week or so, I'm sure that some of you are going to be deployed and we're going to be off trying to kill the people that just did this. And so you guys better get ready. You better all kind of pack and be ready because some of you are going to get deployed. Well, I didn't know it, but it was going to be three years later before I actually had to go to war. In that time, I was briefly deployed to Biloxi Air Force Base in, in Mississippi, and then I was briefly deployed to Launchstuhl Regional Medical Center in Germany and did some work there that I shared with you at different times in the past probably. But then on, in December of 2004, I actually got deployed to the Iraq War, 
And it was in the Iraq War that I really learned how to be a trauma surgeon. I, I learned a lot about trauma in Pittsburgh. Of course, I'd done a lot of trauma surgery in Pittsburgh and in San Antonio, but nobody prepares you for being a combat surgeon in a war environment or you're in a tent hospital and you don't have enough resources and you don't have enough blood. And literally my colleagues would go down the hall and donate their own blood. If we had a mass casualty and the hospital ran out of blood product and the patient needed O positive blood, they would announce overhead, hey, we need O positive blood. And people would roll up their shirt sleeves and donate their blood to give to the patients. And sometimes they were giving blood to the terrorist who had blown the who set the bomb off and blew himself up and our soldiers were giving their own blood to save the life if that's not a christian metaphor i don't know what is so again i'm not preaching to you i'm just telling you stories but that experience of me doing 200 brain surgeries in a tent hospital and seeing all that carnage and and all the stress that goes back to 9-11 right i wouldn't have been there without 9-11 happening so the thread of my life being an active duty military member on a military base at 9-11. That was a dramatic experience. And then three years later, get deployed to the war. That's the result of that event that happened on 9-11. And then I'm there, and I'm doing all that stuff, and I come home, and I went through a lot of life change. I mean, I was traumatized, and, and I had a rough marriage. I've, I've been very transparent with you. My first marriage was was tough and ended in divorce shortly after I got home from the Iraq War. That's a long story. I told some of it in my first book. But so I get, I go through a divorce. I, I move from San Antonio to Montgomery, Alabama, because that's where my children were. After my divorce, that they moved with their mom to Alabama, where she had family. And so I decided I'm going there to be close to where my kids are, and took a job there. And, and I'm working in Montgomery. And eventually, you know, time goes by, and I get married again. I meet Lisa, and my life starts to come together again. I'm building relationships, and my family's coming back together, and we blend our families, and God's been faithful, and, and all this good stuff is happening. And we moved from Montgomery to Auburn and started practice there and, and just had a great life happening. And then 2010, I went crazy. I had a out of nowhere blow up of what we know now, what I know now to have been post-traumatic stress syndrome or post-traumatic stress disorder, if you want to call it that. And so I had a, a, an encounter with all of this stuff I brought home from the war that goes all the way back to 9-11 and goes through San Antonio and goes through Germany and goes through Iraq and goes through Alabama. And the thread then in 2010, I had this significant flare-up of significant emotional distress that really was the result of the fact that I came home from the war and was going through immense personal change and stress, and I just put all that stuff in the trunk and didn't deal with it, didn't talk about it, didn't unpack it in a physical or a mental way, and just stuffed it in there because I had too much else going on. I had a divorce. I had to fight for my kids. I had to move to another city. I had to start a practice. I had to become a civilian after all those years in the military. I had to start dating Lisa. We ultimately got married. I went through all of that stuff, but I'd never dealt with the trauma. Okay. If you've read my new book, Hope is the First Dose, you hear me tell a story about King David not dealing with his trauma of losing his son, and look how that worked out for him. It didn't work out very well, and in my life, it didn't work out well either. That PTSD came roaring out, and it created some real issues for me for a while. And ultimately, though, that led to me writing. David Estep, a friend of mine who was a psychiatrist at the hospital there in Alabama, 
echoed what Lisa had told me, which is you need to write, you need to unpack, you need to journal, you need to open that trunk and get all that stuff out, you need to talk about it. And ultimately, that led to me writing. And and finally, ultimately, I wrote a book called Out, A Brain Surgeon Goes to War. And that was a a self-published book that I wrote and put all kinds of pictures and emails that I'd sent home and basically just wrote a a little memoir of what my war experience was like as a means of therapy to help me deal with you know, my massive thing of PTSD. And it worked. It really helped me. And it's a long story that I've told elsewhere. I've told the whole story, and I've seen the interview. But long story short, I was dealing with this clinical problem of wondering why I would see a brain scan and I would know what was going to happen. I would see the end of that patient. It was a glioblastoma. I could forecast exactly what was going to happen. And I had all these conundrums as a man of faith of why I was so sure I knew what was going to happen that I didn't even pray about it sometimes. And how can I help my patient maintain hope? Because I knew how important that was, even when the medical situation is hopeless. And that led to the writing of my second book. But in the meantime, I wrote to Philip Yancey, who had been instrumental to me in helping me work through some spiritual problems when I was raised in a church that didn't provide a lot of real-world answers to when things hurt. If your life wasn't going well, your theology didn't help you much. It, It condemned you, but it didn't really help you, comfort you. And so I crashed into this difficulty with my marriage and residency and all the things I was going through and my faith wasn't helping me. And, and some a friend gave me a copy of Philip Yancey's book, The Jesus I Never Knew, and his other book, What's So Amazing About Grace. And those two books really saved me I mean, in this very real sense. I remember standing in the locker room in probably 98 or 99 at Pittsburgh, changing into my scrubs, and I was weeping because I'd read this book, and, I, and for the first time in my life, I cried out to Jesus, and I, and I was like, my faith, since I was 11 years old and I was baptized, my faith has been about me trying to save myself. And what I know now, what I knew then in that locker room was, I can't save myself, and you got to do it, Jesus. you you got to help me. And I believe, honestly, I believe that was my conversion moment. Like, I had been baptized. I've been a Christian my whole life. I've been a student of the Word. And by the way, don't hear me wrong. I am incredibly grateful for my family, my, my mom and my dad teaching me to find the answers in the Word, to look to the Word, to find the answers. The church that I was raised in was very good about learning and memorizing Scripture. I have incredible memories of being taught memory verses and learning the books of the Bible and all that stuff and all those Bible stories, and they, they became part of the prehab that really helped me. But the theology was off just a little bit at least in, in, in terms of the theology that I absorbed. I don't really think my parents ever thought about it the way that I did. I think I got it from youth ministers and some people in the church who were influential to me, and I think I took a lesson that my parents never intended me for, to take, and I don't think they ever felt the way that I did, but I really had this deep sense that I was one mistake away from burning in hell forever. And you can't grow in your spiritual walk if you're constantly worried about being lost and and saved and lost and saved. And did I forget to repent for this? And you can't grow if you're constantly in that grist mill of trying to pay for your own sins. And that's why Jesus comes along and says, my yoke is easy. I wasn't carrying an easy yoke for all those years. And I know I'm rambling here, but there's a point and I'm, I'm about to get to it. 
I, I found Philip Yancey, and for the first time, I recognized a Jesus that I did not know. The Jesus I never knew exactly was right for me. He wasn't waiting out there to to smite me. He was waiting out there to let me accept his gift of his blood and sacrifice so that I could finally understand that what God said in Isaiah, settle this. Come now, let us settle the matter. Though your sins were as scarlet, I have washed them white as snow. That's what God says. He doesn't say, hey, you better make sure that you account for every mistake and every sin. You better make sure you get them all squared away or I'm going to cook you. That's the God I thought I grew up with. I don't think it's the God my parents intended for me to grow up with, but I, I think it was an uncle or a youth minister. Somewhere along the way, I developed this flawed theology that it was all about performance. And the fact is, Jesus says, quit trying. The Bible says, cease striving and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. And he's saying, hey, life is going to mess you up, and I'm going to help you. Trust me. Hang in there. I came that you can have an abundant life, and abundance is not found in legalism. Abundance is not found in trying to make sure you account for every mistake and earn your way to heaven. You can't find abundance there. So I'm in the locker room. I'm reading Philip Yancey. I'm having a conversion experience. That leads me to San Antonio. My theology is getting better, but my marriage is getting worse. I get to Iraq. I go through all this. Years later, I'm finally in a happy place with my family. I'm, re- I'm married to Lisa now. I'm, I'm better, and I have this PT- PTSD encounter. I, I go a little bit crazy. I journal and work my way through that and begin writing, and I write what ultimately becomes called out, this self-published book, right? Then I write to Philip Yancey, and I say, hey, you don't know me from Adam. And by the way, Lisa's the one that told me, hey, she said, you keep talking about this problem, and you also keep talking about how you learn so much from Philip Yancey, and he's written so much about where's God when it hurts and all this medical stuff he's written with Paul Brand, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, and all of that. Maybe he would be a guy you could bounce this question off of, and he could help you understand why you're having a hard time praying when you already think you know the outcome. So Lisa gave me the idea, and I reached out to the publisher. I didn't have any way to contact Philip Yancey, but there was a website the publisher, I think it was Zondervan for one of his books, and it said, contact the author. There's an email at Zondervan.com or whatever publisher it was. And I thought, yeah, I'll write this as a therapy, but I don't expect to ever hear from him. I don't think he's actually ever going to write me back. Lo and behold, sometime in 2010 or so, he did write me back. And he and I exchanged, Philip Yancey and I exchanged a series of emails about this problem that began to crystallize my thinking that ultimately would lead me to write I've seen the interview and, and work my way out of that problem. But in the meantime, I began to read Philip Yancey's blog and follow him, and we were emailing back and forth. And he posted a post on his blog one time about the Iraq War. Some of his thoughts on it, and some of his thoughts were different than my thoughts on it, having been there. And I wrote him another email, and I said, hey, I don't want to argue with you, or I'm going to have a political discussion with you, but if you'd like to read an account of what it was like to be there, then I'll send you my book, this book that I published, self-published, and and you can get my thoughts on it. And he wrote back and said, sure, I'd, I'd love to read it, send it to me. And I thought, well, that's the end of that story. I never thought we'd talk about it again. 
I certainly wasn't looking for anything from him. I had no designs at the time to become a writer or do anything more than just have written that self-published book. And I was standing, Lisa and I went to Boulder, Colorado on a business trip. This is, again, probably 2011 or so. I'm not exactly sure when. We were in Boulder, Colorado on a business trip, and I was standing in the spa lobby of the St. Julian Hotel, Okay, the spa, uh, the lobby of the spa at the St. Julian Hotel in Boulder, Colorado. Lisa was getting a facial or something, and, and I was waiting on her. My phone rang, my cell phone, and I looked down. I didn't recognize the number. It was a Colorado number, and I answered it, and he said, is this Dr. Lee Warren? I said, yes, and he said, this is Philip Yancey. And I must have put my phone number in my email that I had sent him before, but it's the first time I'd ever heard his voice in a personal conversation, I heard him on video before, of course, but first time I'd ever heard his voice in real life. And I said, Philip Yancey, you mean the writer? And he said, yeah. He said, I, I got your book. I read it in 48 hours and it's a remarkable story. And I was like, well, thank you very much. And I appreciate that. And he said, you gave me some new perspective on the war and I really appreciate it. And he said, but I want to tell you, I think the book deserves a wider audience. And I was like, what does that mean? What do I do about that? And he said, well, I think it could achieve a wider audience if you were a better writer. <laughs> it let me know the writing was like I wrote it for my mom and my friends because that's what I did. It was a, a, basically a self-published collection of stories for family and friends to help them understand what I'd gone through as a means of therapy for myself. And so he wasn't being mean. He was just saying, you didn't write it like it was for a stranger. You read it like there's a lot of insider, inside baseball kind of stuff that, that people wouldn't resonate with if they didn't already know you. He said, so if you would like to write it in a better way or hire a ghostwriter or something like that, if you want to do that and make it a book that would be more acceptable to a wider audience, then if you do that and send it to me and if it's good enough, I will introduce you to my agent, Kathy Helmers, and she can help you get a book deal. And so here I had Philip Yancey who sold I don't know, 50 million books or something. He's the most influential person in my life up there along with alongside Max Lucado. Helped me the most theologically here. He's offering to help me get my book published if I can learn how to write it. And so I do that. I go try to hire ghostwriters. And then Lisa and I decided that we couldn't really stomach the idea of letting somebody else tell my story. And so ultimately, I did what I always do when I have a complex problem is I bought textbooks, I bought books on writing. I spent two years learning everything I could about writing, practicing, sending manuscripts to Christy Truitt and other people that are friends of ours. And Christy was so gracious and kind, and she would say, no, this is terrible. You can't, you really can't write. you, you got to keep practicing. So I did. I worked and worked and honed the craft and tried to become better and ultimately wrote the book again and sent it to Philip. And lo and behold, he said, yeah, it's good enough. Let me introduce you to Kathy Helmers. And he did that. Kathy helped me kind of fine tune it. We hired an editor. We did all this stuff and got the manuscript as good as we thought it could be. And that she took to publishers and in 2013 sold the book to Zondervan. And it took 14 days from the time we pitched it to the time they bought what ultimately became no Place to Hide. I'm holding it up to the camera now if you're watching the video. In my book, No Place to Hide, a brain surgeon's long journey home from the Iraq war was the story of what happened in Iraq and beyond and, and all the, the difficulties 
thinking I was going crazy and all that stuff. And so that all happened, that long story, that long narrative arc that I just told you about, happened because of Philip Yancey, which happened because of PTSD, which happened because of the Iraq War, which happened because of 9-11. Okay, so I'm just thinking about that today. And then what happened after that? I kept working on that clinical problem, that that issue of thinking I knew what was going to happen and the the real spiritual conundrum that I'd been dealing with even before I had PTSD and ultimately copped out of concentrating on that and wrote No Place to Hide when I was really, I think, supposed to be or at least thinking about writing what turned out to be I've Seen the End of You, my second book, Neurosurgeons Look at Faith, Doubt, and the Things We Think We Know, which came out in January of 2020 and went on to win the Christian Book Award for Memoir and Biography in 2021. And all of that happened because of this thread that goes all the way back to 9-11. Now, look what else has happened. I've seen the interview has been translated into Italian, Hovista Latua Fine, which means I've seen the interview. It's been an inside joke to the Italians because that phrase, I've seen the interview, in Italian, literally means I can see your bottom, like I can see your backside. And so the translator, Gabriella, who did a beautiful job with this book, by the way, she said, there's just no way to translate that without Italians thinking about somebody's rear end. But <laughs> but it just worked out that way. And so hopefully the metaphor works out. If you read it in Italian or you're one of my Italian listeners, please know that the book is not about your backside. It's about the end of your life down the road. It's also been recently translated into German. I can't even pronounce the name in German, but it translates, according to my friend Hank Jan and my friend Hans, my two Dutch friends who speak German, it translates into decisions at the threshold of death, decisions on the brink of death. A neurosurgeon looks at hope and faith and doubt and all those things. So the book is out in German. It's coming out in Thai next year. That's really cool. It's amazing to me that I've had my book's now translated into three languages besides English, and Spanish isn't one of them. It's, I would have I would have always thought that Spanish would be the first one, and it's not. It's Italian, German, and Thai. If you are a Spanish speaker or if you work for a publishing company in Mexico or someplace like that, if you would like to translate my books into Spanish, you would be the first one to do so. So I'm just inviting you to do that. So it's interesting how the word gets around the world in different ways, isn't it? And I just... I'm shocked still that it's not out in Spanish. Again, this thread of all these books and all these stuff going all over the world, even the podcast. So my newsletter and my podcast started in 2013 when Mitch died. And ultimately that had a lot to do, losing a son had a lot to do with me deciding to start writing on a weekly basis and a a back and forth basis with people and connecting with people other than in books. And that led to podcasting as a natural extension of just wanting people to hear my voice and and being able to say, hey, I I get that. I understand it. The, The whole purpose behind podcasting, by the way, is at least the way I look at it, is that there's an there's a connection that you can have when you hear somebody that you can't have when you just read them. And I made a mistake, but it wasn't a mistake. I, I did not narrate No Place to Hide. I didn't do the audiobook. And the reason I didn't is because that was getting produced about two months after Mitch died. And Zondervan approached me and said, hey, can you do you want to read the book? Do you want to narrate it yourself? And I just, honestly, I didn't have the emotional bandwidth to do it. I, I just couldn't do it. 
every time I've tried to listen to the audiobook of No Place to Hide, I just I can't get through it. And Chip Arnold did a great job with the narration. I've heard from people all over the world. In fact, my relationship with Daniel Amen came about because his daughter or daughter-in-law, I think, gave him No Place to Hide on Audible for Father's Day. And he reached out to me to say that the book had meant a lot to him. So the, the audiobook was done well. It's just not in my voice. And it's not in the way that I would pronounce certain things or phrases the way I would say them. And so I can't hear it and, and appreciate it the way I would like to because it isn't my voice. It's not my tone, my style. I don't mean literally my voice, but nobody can read your words like you can, right? So... Anyway, the the long narrative arc here, the long thread of this whole episode is about this idea that goes all the way back to 9-11. And so I just, I thought there was some value in sharing that with you. Like stuff that happens in your life, if you look back, you can see the trail of breadcrumbs that lead back to some inciting event. And it makes you who you are today. And as I talk about this story that I've been unfolding now for half an hour, almost 40 minutes, is just to say that I've seen the interview came out. That connected me to a larger audience around the world. It, it cemented the reality that I really am an author and not just a surgeon who's writing on the side. I mean, that getting the Christian Book Award did that, which to me, it, it did a, a psychological thing in my mind. Max Lucado was so kind to point that out to me that I don't, I don't know that I would have made the connection. He said, don't mistake this. Those people didn't read that book because you're a surgeon. The, the, the people who gave you that award didn't give it to you because you're a doctor. They gave it to you because you wrote a really good book. And you're really a writer. You need to write more. And at the time he said that, I had just begun the conceptual beginnings of what turned into this book that's now out, Hope is the First Dose, Treatment Plan for Recovering from Trauma, Tragedy, and Other Massive Things. Now, Hope is the First Dose is the story and self-help smashed together. It's not just memoir like my previous two books. It's self-help. It's learning a treatment plan for how you can change your mind and change your life. But it starts with the story of us losing our son, Mitch, and and how we managed to find our way forward. I've seen the interview ends with the story of us losing Mitch and just a little bit of hope at the very end that, yeah, we're making it through. It's, it's that we made it through, not how we made it through. And I felt Ever since I wrote that, I've felt this nag, this tug in my heart and my spirit that I needed to show you the plan. I needed to help you unlock, and it took me a long time. So honestly, as I'm an accomplished surgeon. I'm comfortable with that. I'm, I know that I'm able to communicate in writing and in podcasting now, but I still have this little bit of imposter syndrome and the idea of writing self-help books, and I'll tell you why. It, it's I have this feeling that I need to explain to you why I can tell you what you need to do. And that's kind of what Hope is the First Dose has done. It starts with this sort of narrative nonfiction process of what we did and what happened to us. And then it morphs as the story goes along into here's what you can do too. Okay. The next book is going to be self-help. It's going to start. Here's what you do. Here's how you go forward. Because I feel like we've come together in this journey all the way back from this thread that started on 9-11, and we've learned together 
that we can trust each other and that we can help each other learn. And now I'm ready to say, okay, here's the stuff I've learned and here's how you can apply it in your life, okay? But I just want to finish this kind of long rambling story that hope is the first dose. I sold that manuscript to Waterbrook Penguin Random House who published I've Seen the Interview. And in April of this year, we went over to Boulder, Colorado, and stayed at the St. Julian Hotel, which Lisa and I always stay when we go there. And I recorded the audiobook. So I recorded the audiobook for I've Seen the Interview because I didn't like how it sounded with my first book when I didn't record it myself. And I recorded this one too. I was given the opportunity by the publisher to record it. And we were there, and on a Tuesday night in Boulder of this year, we had dinner at the St. Julian at Jill's Restaurant with Lisa and Tata and Kathy Helmers, my agent from all those years ago, and Philip and Janet Yancey were there. And during the meal, it just occurred, and we had a moment where we all realized that we were in the same room at the same time, in the same place where Philip had made that phone call all those years before to tell me that he thought I could write books. And so we had this long narrative arc that landed in the St. Julian in the dining room of Jill's restaurant in April of this year with this hopeful reunion of all these people who had connected over pain and over questions and over theology and over faith and over doubt and over three books now that started with a phone call that happened because of an email that happened because of PTSD that happened because of the Iraq war that happened because of 9-11. Now that's a thread that you can follow. Okay. So long podcast here this morning for me, just rambling and ruminating over some things that I've been chewing on to tell you this, it's valuable to look back in your life and see the steps that you've taken, to see the places where God brought you through something, to see the places where you stepped off the path and how you found your way back. It's valuable to remember, to go back and say, God got me through that. I messed that up and God helped me find my way back. And now I'm at this place. And I know here on September the 11th, friend, it's a day of remembering. It's a day of knowing that Planes crash into buildings and people do bad things and life can change like that. And dramatic things can occur in your life. We're going to talk about one later in this week that's not as dramatic as 9-11, but it means a lot to me and Lisa and our family and Tata. And we're going to share it with you later this week. But things happen like that when you're not ready for them and your whole life can be changed. But just like I said, and hope is the first dose, those 9-11 type moments those sudden changes in your life, they can, those massive things that come along, those traumas and tragedies and hurts of various sorts, they can be the thing that defines your life from there on out. But if you do that, if they become an idol, if they become the only thing that your life is about, if they become the biggest thing in your whole life, then that will limit how much you can become healthier and feel better and be happier in your life. The, the more tightly coupled your circumstances from your peace of mind, hope, happiness, all that stuff I put on those scales and hope is the first dose, those graphs, it will limit your ability to have emotional resilience and bandwidth. If it becomes the thing it can't be just a thing in a life full of other things, some of which are really good and some of which 
aren't so good. I started this by telling you that somebody unsubscribed and they said there was too much preaching and not enough clinical content. And I'm telling you that the message, the faith part is intimately tied and smashed together and unified with the clinical context. And I'll tell you why. If you strip away all the spiritual elements of learning how to get your mind under control and just take the metaphysical part of meditation, for example, then you can get what Dan Harris wrote about in 10% Happier. Or he said, hey, when I'm feeling anxious, if I can just learn to put a little space in between what I think and what I do, between stimulus and response, between what life tells me I need to do and what I actually respond with, if I can just put a little gap in there, that's what meditation is about. The Eastern version of meditation is about quieting and about calming your thoughts and just stopping everything so that you can put a little space in your brain. And Dan Harris is right. You can become a little bit happier. By doing that, you can become 10% happier, he says. And he thinks that's enough. It's not enough when you have a massive thing. It's not enough when you lose your son. It's not enough when your husband dies of glioblastoma. Yes, Angela, we're thinking about you today. It's not enough. 10% happier is not enough if you're infinitely sad, friend. It's not enough. So you can have 10% if, if you want. Or if you just focus on the neuroscience and you understand how your brain and your mind interact, the hardware and software, and you understand that you can actually change what happens in your soul, happens in your cells, as Susie Larson says, if you can understand that you can rewire parts of your brain and you can literally do self-brain surgery and you can change by changing how you think, you can change your neurotransmitters and your hormones and your DNA and your epigenetics and your neurobiology and even your offspring. If you can just get the neuroscience part of that down, then you can be more than 10% happier. You can become significantly more resilient and significantly better at managing your life. And you can become significantly more well-rounded and more balanced and you can feel better significantly. So 10% by just learning that little space, the thought biopsy technique. And significant by really dig, digging deep into interpersonal neurobiology and, and, neuro, and, and all these things that we've been talking about, limbic resonance and all these things that we're going to get into as season nine starts to unfold soon. You can be significantly happier, okay? But I'm just here to tell you, as a friend and as somebody who's been walking this path for a long time now, that if you lose your child or if your husband gets a glioblastoma, or as an email that I got yesterday, young, beautiful family, teenage daughters, and the husband decides he needs to go to Thailand and, and change his life and just leaves. And so you can be abandoned. You can be distraught. You can be financially imperiled. You can be ill. You can develop a chronic pain syndrome. And when you do those things, if those things happen to you, those massive things happen, I think that you will find there's a hollow spot if you don't add in the faith element. I think the faith element is what changes you from significantly better to almost infinitely better. And here's what I mean by that. I told you in, a, in the new book, Hope is the First Dose, that understanding that biblical promises really are true and that they are there's all kinds of stuff in the Bible that points to what we would later discover in neuroscience to also be true. And that if you understand that transforming your mind 
and beginning to test and to prove what is God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. Romans 12, 2. That's how you can finally break free of this cycle of life beating you down and making pathways in your brain that are default negative and thinking that you just can't quite break through. And that's why what got you here on September 11th, 2023, to this place where you're saying, yeah, I need some of that. I need some of that hope. I need to flex that muscle of memory and movement. I need to move towards something better. But what got you here, friend, won't get you there. And I think the infinite part is the faith element. I'm not preaching. I'm just saying as a bereaved father and as somebody who has walked with thousands of patients through their hardest times, And as somebody who's watched my dear wife and my dear children navigate losing son and brother and my parents and Tata lose and and Nanny lose grandchildren, I've seen so much loss and so much pain, and it's just not enough to make it really okay for you to really find how to become healthier and feel better and be happier. It's not enough unless you have that faith piece in there too. So I'm not preaching. I'm just telling you what worked for us, that there really is a way that you can change your mind and change your life. And sometimes it takes a long narrative arc to find that hope that lands in that dining room where Philip Yancey and Tata and Kathy Helmers and Janet Yancey and Lisa and I are all sitting there together, connecting those dots of that long thread that started on 9-11 and ended with hope as the first dose, and it didn't end, but continues through hope as the first dose and beyond. That's how you find hope, okay? You change your brain and change your mind, and that'll change your life. And sometimes it takes years to see how all of that stuff led you to here. But what got you here won't get you there, my friend. To get there, you got to change your mind. You need a treatment plan. And hope is the first dose. And here on 9-11, I'm just here to remind you, my friend, that you can start today. Hey, thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the show so you automatically get every episode. And if you like the show, you'll love my weekly letter. Check out my writing at drleewarren.substack.com, drleewarren.substack.com. Get the free newsletter every week for my best prescriptions for becoming healthier, feeling better, and being happier through the power of faith and neuroscience smashing together via self-brain surgery, drleewarren.substack.com. And if you need prayer, go to the prayer wall at wleewarrenmd.com slash prayer. The theme music for the show is Make Us One by Tommy Walker, graciously provided for free by the great folks over at tommywalkerministries.org. Check it out and consider supporting them, tommywalkerministries.org. Remember, you can't change your life until you change your mind. And the good news is you can start today. I'm Dr. Lee Warren. I'll talk to you soon. God bless you, friend. Have a great day.